But the moment that you go abroad, that's when you take a lot of the conventional rules and sort of throw them out the window, but they still apply. So just, I would like to lovingly refer to a lot of these people as accidental Americans, where you're an American, but you didn't know it. This is episode 28 of the Welcome Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're, uh, we're doing all the things that uh, I think a normal person doing homeschool with four kids would do, which is not a lot of things for us and then a lot of things for kids. Okay. Well, I'm thinking the lot of for you would be caffeine. <laughs> and and you could mix alcohol in there too as well, depending on how the well, homeschooling is going. That, that that's yes, there's some extra variables thrown in. Yes, for sure, <laughs> for sure. And then it it makes the the line between use and abuse of those substances narrow way way down. You know, you throw in all these extra variables. Oh, I could definitely. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. That's uh, but it's it's going okay. It's the kids okay. are enjoying it. Kids are doing okay. They are actually, yeah, they're doing okay. They seem to be liking it all right. Uh, schools are, at least in our district, going to a hybrid system soon where that's like some in class and then some out of class, but you can elect out to just continue to do all virtual. And it looks like right now we're going to elect out to do all virtual and let basically everybody else be the guinea pigs in the hybrid system. And if that works fine, it works fine. And we'll kind of let that run through the end of the year and then next year uh, we'll make another decision about whether they're going to go back in person. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed they can and everything works out. Yeah. Hopefully so. You never know. You just never know. Yep. Well, today we are going to talk about U.S. Canadian cross-border finance and investing and we'll get into some estate planning and estate tax stuff. We're joined by Shiraz Ahmed, Ahmed, if I butchered your name, Shiraz. That's okay. It's all good. Uh, uh, Shiraz is at Raymond James in beautiful Toronto, Ontario. Uh, He's a financial advisor and associate portfolio manager with Satorial Wealth of Raymond James Limited. And Shiraz, we cannot thank you enough for joining us. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Happy to be here. And we were were talking before we jumped on here how you grew up in Winnipeg. So now I want to know how you ended up in Winnipeg because you didn't oh, actually, man, a, you didn't actually explain that. No, I did not. So a loaded question. Um, so my dad immigrated to Canada from England I think in the late sixties. So got a job in Toronto and then eventually got an opportunity. So my dad had, at least for me being a kid, really cool job. He built rocket ships and, and airplanes for a living. Which wow. Is really that's cool. cool. That's really awesome. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool. So the company is called Bristol Aerospace. They're owned by uh, Rolls Royce Magellan at the time. So he, we moved to Winnipeg. So Central Canada, that's where they made like, so I think they had contracts with like Lockheed Martin and all these other really cool entities. So in grade nine in Canada, you get this whole take your kids to work day. So my take your kids to work day was awesome. I got to see a 777 being made, which is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was really cool. So I'm, I'm just ready. When, when my daughter gets old enough to do that, she's going to be so bored at my take your kids to work day. But, <laughs> uh, we do good things, which is really cool. But is it as interesting as watching a, the tail fin of a triple seven being made? Probably not. Probably not. No, I'm going to, I'm going to have to agree with you there. Probably the, 
the coolest thing I ever did for my kids from a career perspective of children under the age of 10 was I took them to the Royal Tyrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta, Canada. And it's just this massive building with all these like dinosaur bones, some constructed, some like coming out of rocks and all this stuff. It's massive. And of course, all these kids under 10 were just blown away. They loved it. And so at that point in their lives, all of them thought that they were going to be dinosaur hunters for their life. Like that was going to be their career goal. So like, I was like, yes, I'm going to take them to, to Drumheller to see this museum. Well, it's totally. I mean, for the longest time, I thought I could end up being Superman if I tried really hard. <laughs> it clearly did not happen. So I, all these things are all totally occupations, but at least you had a realistic one. I mean, being an archaeologist would be cool. I've seen Indiana Jones more often than I care to admit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's cool, man. Well, and you, you did not go into then your dad's line of business. So why don't you give us at least the, the, the 30,000 foot view of what you do. And then I guess we can jump into some of the particulars. Absolutely happy to. So in a nutshell, I'm fairly unique in the industry and in then I'm actually a cross-border wealth manager. So I carry a full license to practice in both Canada and the United States. So that sets me apart from almost everybody in frankly, both countries because most either have one or the other, but very rarely do they have both. And as you guys are know, and, and I'm not sure if the viewers are aware, but securities laws in both countries are actually residency-based, even though taxation for at least Americans is citizenship-based, which is interesting. So at times there could be conflict. So we're kind of uniquely positioned to fix that problem. But before I got into this on that end, uh, as a family, we're a cross-border family. My siblings live in the US. I travel there all the time. So I had to quite literally learn what to do the hard way personally well before I started doing it professionally. So um, from my end, you know, in the business, it's nearing, I think, 18 years. I've got the curse of the baby face, but we've been doing this for a long time. Um, you know, I started off on the institutional side of our business for a long time. And then I quite, I had the unique benefit of being able to meet over 1,500 advisors in my career. So I quite literally built my practice by watching others not do it, in my opinion, the right way all the time. So you know, I wanted to make sure that we were licensed to do basically anything, I think, except for U.S. insurance. Uh, but we're fiduciaries in both countries, Canada and the United States. I'm a discretionary portfolio manager in both. Uh, so really, it's all about doing the right thing for the clients and help them get from point A to point B and whatever that is, regardless of where they are physically. And that unfortunately tends to really get in the way of a lot of people's goals long term because no one really knows when you're going to move. It just happens. Yeah, exactly. And it, it can be involuntary in the sense that economics just kind of push somebody a particular direction kind of like you know your dad getting a job in winnipeg he probably during his lifetime was not like you know what i wish that i could live in winnipeg no no offense to anybody in winnipeg of course with all due respect but he you know that probably wasn't like top of his list uh and yet economics you know had him moving there absolutely well, i mean i don't think he would have thought growing up in india that he'd end up in winnipeg of all places on the planet but it definitely happened so you're right circumstances really dictate and you never know if somebody's you know families in the military or they're working with you know executive at a company they frequently get bounced around a lot uh so it does happen involuntarily more often than not mm -hmm. well on that note then i think uh for purposes of our discussion as we kind of get into the weeds here then why don't we talk about kind of some common surprises that Americans find when they move to Canada. And then after we talk about that, maybe flip it on its head and talk about some common surprises that Canadians find when they move to the States. And then uh, maybe wrap up by discussing efficient ways to do structuring across the borders because 
both countries are different. How's that sound? Yeah, sure. Happy. Uh, although I can take a first stab at it. I'd love to get your guys' insight on it as well. So from, I can talk at least from the investment security standpoint. So mm-hmm. what's interesting is, as I was kind of mentioning sort of before we started, is securities laws in both countries are actually residency-based. Um, but taxation, on the other hand, at least for the United States, is based off of citizenship or anybody would be considered to be a U.S. person. So specifically, when Americans move abroad, I actually find that that's actually of the two scenarios, the one that's met with a little bit more friction, typically, uh, simply because you're used to doing things a certain way. And while our countries are very much aligned, our laws are actually a little bit different. And so there isn't one-to-one matchups. Like, for example, we don't have 401ks in Canada. We have our own Canadian equivalents that are similar, but we don't have the exact same thing. In fact, a 401k is kind of a hybrid of two different things that we have. So there isn't always necessarily a one-to-one matchup with your current investment scheme that you currently have versus what the receiving side in the, in the other jurisdiction would have. So there can be some friction and some frustration on some ambiguity of what you can and can't do. Uh, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I very much like to lovingly call Canada a little bit of a rounding error. I mean, we're the size of California from a population standpoint with, I believe, a GDP smaller than California. So I don't think a lot of the U.S. institutions, frankly, care to learn too much about what some of the rules are up here but they are a bit different. So one of the main things being is that when you move over the border, you are legally allowed to maintain your US-based retirement assets. I like to refer to, uh, at least my best way to explain what you can and can't do is, uh, imagine your retirement accounts in either country are like cement poles. They're permanent fixtures in the ground. You earn them while you're legally a resident of that country and you're entitled to keep it. So you don't have to get rid of it. Um, You just have to be with a financial institution that is licensed to handle you where you currently are. And on the flip side, your non-retirement assets are like luggage. They have to come with you on the plane. You can't fly without it. So they have to go with you into a country of jurisdiction. So that's kind of the real high level 30,000 foot overview. Now, the challenge comes is that when you move over the border as an American, there are certain things that you're not allowed to do anymore or that are uh, prohibitive as an American living abroad. Because unfortunately, the United States is one of three countries on the planet that have a global reporting requirement for other U.S. persons. And it's not necessarily in the greatest of companies. So it could be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and, and I agree. I find that, that that's taxation by citizenship element is quite surprising to a lot of clients or potential clients or even advisors uh, in the U.S. that I talk to. There is the element of like, yes, that like we're one of only three countries that actually do it, us, Eritrea, and I think North Korea. Um, who actually tax people based on their citizenship, meaning if you're a citizen, you're taxable in the United States on your worldwide income. And most states in the United States don't operate that way, where the state will not tax you in that state because you were, for example, born there, Uh, whereas citizenship in the U.S. can be acquired just by being born here, even if you never actually live here. And most of the states instead will tax you kind of like pretty much every other country in the world would tax it's Uh, its own residence, which is based on your residency. Like, do you actually reside in that location? And if you do, then that state will tax you in the first instance on all of your, all of your income, regardless of where you're earning it. So like if you are an Arizona resident, you you report all of your income, regardless of which state you're earning it in, in the state of Arizona. And then you may have offsetting credits in another state. So if you're doing business in, say, Colorado, you're earning money in Colorado, you might get an offsetting credit for taxes you had to pay in in Colorado on that business income, even though you have to report it in Arizona as well. So most countries 
in the world function that way, the way that states do in the U.S. vis-a-vis one another. So then when somebody who's a U.S. citizen, say, moves to another country, not a state, but another country like Canada, it comes as a big shock because it's totally different from what they're used to. And they don't even realize that they're being subject to this weird rule because while you reside in the U.S., it's really not that important. But once you move, it becomes really important. Absolutely. And I think people get caught and, and are not, not unintentionally is what the best way for me to describe it. I don't think they know. And so some people, when they move, do it on a purposeful manner, right? Where they seek out counsel, whether it be legal or tax counsel and whatnot, to be able to actually help coordinate that, that, that move. Other people just do it and then kind of realize, after, oh no, I could have done that a bit better, right? And as you know, there's only so much you can do as sort of post-mortem planning, right? There's some stuff you can go backwards and try to fix and some things you can't. And so what, what ends up happening more often than not, specifically when it comes to the residency side for an American moving over the border, let's say you had an IRA at any U.S. institution, the unfortunate reality is that because they're required to be working with an American resident client, the moment that they moved over the border, it usually triggers this ticking clock effectively for the client where you moved over the border, you typically get a Dear John letter that says you got 90 days, 60 days, move your stuff. We don't care where or else here's a check. Mostly because the American institution and the advisor are not licensed to take on a Canadian resident account. And that's the problem. And so what some people do to try to keep things kind of under the radar is use an old address or, you know, an aunt or an uncle or something of that nature, which has its own other set of issues by opening up potential state problems where you're living in a state or quote unquote living in a state where you're not actually are. So it opens up other potential challenges, not to mention certain financial institutions are now checking IP address login pings to see whether or not you, are you logging in all the time from Canada? Are you actually living in Vancouver and pretending to live in, you know, Portland, right? So who knows what the case, I'm just picking on those two guys, but um, those things are are real issues. These are real problems that we've encountered. So, you know, the idea behind is that there's a right way to do it. And then there's a not necessarily the right way. And, and you can get things done, but you want to make sure you're doing everything above board and make sure you're keeping with all the regulatory regimes that are out there. Yeah. And maybe just to flesh that out slightly in case anybody missed it, the, the issue would be that the financial institution or your investment advisory uh, team in the U.S., once you become a non-U.S. resident, they're not licensed to do the same work for you. And so you they're telling you, you have to move your money because we, we're not, we can't handle your money because you're not U.S. resident and we're not licensed to do financial advisory work for you uh, because our you know, FINRA or SEC or whatever else licensure does not cover non-residents. So that's, that, as I understand, is, is really uh, one of the really important keys that your group is able to, to provide because you have that licensure in both jurisdictions. So you don't have this issue where somebody changes residency and then all of their financial management kind of gets turned upside down. Yeah. So that's definitely a strategic advantage on our part. So I'm definitely happy to be with a firm that actually has that capability. There aren't many in the world, frankly, that have it. So we carry a full FINRA registration in the United States through our, through, um, through the Canadian division of Raymond James. And we also carry a Canadian IROC, which is the equivalent of FINRA registration in Canada. So for my group specifically, we're agnostic as to where a person chooses to go uh, in North America. If you're here, we can still work with you. We just have two different flat platforms and we flip a switch and move things around accordingly internally, which makes things quite easy. And it's a little bit more of an elegant solution and we can provide planning and oversight on both. So that's kind of the cool part. But 
the reality is unfortunate. It's not really fair to the end investor, frankly, that they get put in this mix, but it does happen more often than not. So one of the one of the issues that I frequently see for Americans who move to a foreign country is they move to the foreign country and then they, of course, they're earning money, presumably. They're opening up bank accounts and they're starting to do investments in the foreign country. And it's possible that either they or their advisors in that country are not aware that the nature of the accounts that they're opening up and the investments that they're getting into could actually have a negative effect on them in the U.S. because if they're still a U.S. citizen, they still have to report in the U.S. as if they lived in the U.S. Because uh, again, we don't care if you're a U.S. citizen. We don't really care where you live. You have to report the same way. Can you, can you get into some of those intricacies? And I'm happy to jump in and kind of flush some of them out too if I'm not being clear enough. Absolutely. So happy to jump in. So um, before I go into that, though, one thing to be always mindful of is everyone gets this sort of concern that, oh, no, I have to report to the U.S. Does that mean that I owe them money? So just because you have a reporting requirement doesn't necessarily mean that you owe anything. So Canada and the U.S., at least, that we have treaties between our two countries, and the treaties are designed to minimize dual taxation. So while I'm not a tax lawyer or a CPA, I would encourage you to get proper counsel accordingly. But in general, the treaties are there to minimize that instance. So you don't necessarily owe any money. They just want to know what you have and where you have it. So there's a filing requirement or a reporting requirement. So that being said, some of the nuances is, again, because the United States taxes on citizenship or anybody who'd be considered a U.S. person, which includes a green card holder while you still have an active green card, you just have to do things a bit differently. So, for example, in non-retirement accounts in Canada, there's a concept referred to as a passive foreign investment corporation for U.S. purposes. So what you invest in, the types of vehicles, will actually have a potential impact in your ultimate outcome. So you could cause yourself a taxable event in the U.S., even though this is something that's kind of par for the course in Canada or in the UK or wherever you end up. So these are things that you want to be extra mindful of, of kind of sidestepping some of these landmines. And then not to mention, like you, like you said earlier, Brent, is, is the actual kinds of accounts we have because there aren't one-to-one matchups, even though they're, they're fairly similar. A good example is a Canadian tax-free savings account. For those who aren't aware, it's kind of similar in nature to a Roth IRA uh, in that it's with post-tax dollars gets funded in, You have to be over the age of majority to contribute, and all of your earnings in there can be grown on a tax-deferred basis, uh, which is pretty cool, and there's no penalty for moving money out. But that's not recognized by the U.S. government. So because of that, yes, it's positive on the Canadian side, but you're kind of negating all that benefit on the American side, and then with the increased filing costs, and then some. So it's usually not. We, For all intents and purposes, we suggest maybe that might not be the wisest choice. Yeah, so some really, really good nuggets in there. So first of all, U.S. citizens have to report their ownership of foreign accounts, any sort of foreign financial accounts. So they have to file a foreign bank account report, which is more broad than just quote unquote bank accounts. It certainly applies to bank accounts. If the account balance is more than $10,000 at any moment during the year, and you have to aggregate all of your foreign accounts together to figure out if you hit this $10,000 threshold, so you got to file that foreign bank account report, the FBAR, that's an annual filing. If you're a citizen, you just have to do it. There's no getting out of it. Uh, then it could be that the account balance is high enough that you have to file additional reporting forms that may duplicate information that's already on the FBAR form uh, or may duplicate information that's on yet a different kind of form that you're having to file with the IRS. So you may have four or five different forms to report a single 
account or at least investments that are included in a single account and you have to do that every single day, none of it has anything to do with actual tax. It has 100% to do with collecting information and giving it to the Internal Revenue Service or to the Department of Treasury in the United States. That's it. That's that's the whole that's the whole reason you have to do it. The tax piece of it though can be surprising too. So you mentioned passive foreign investment companies, which are a really big issue. Uh, PFIX, they're called sometimes. And where they become a big issue, at least in my experience, is investments by say uh, U.S. citizens in Canadian mutual funds. Whereas investing in a U.S. mutual fund is sort of no big deal. When you invest in a foreign mutual fund, it is almost always a quote unquote PFIC you're treated as if you have an interest in a corporation that's a foreign corporation and you get taxed in a very negative way. The usual way you get taxed is when you get a distribution from the fund or you sell off the fund, you have to pay ordinary income tax. So the highest marginal rates in the US plus you get charged an interest rate that begins the day you buy the fund. So if you bought the fund 15 years ago, you lived in Canada for 15 years, then you sold it and moved to the US to you know, move home or retire, you've got 15 years worth of interest accruing on the amount of gain that you have accrued in that investment for that 15 year period. So if you, you know, if the investment multiplied many times over, you've got to pay ordinary income tax on all of that multiplied appreciation plus an interest charge on all of it for the entire holding period. That can be an incredibly nasty result. And without being very careful and deliberate about it, you get hit with those rules and ignorance of the rules does not get you out of them. There's not like a fail safe. There's not a exception to, I didn't know, oops, I get to fix this. There's like a very narrow exception if you got really bad advice, but that's, that's pretty much it. So once you're in those rules, you're pretty much in them and there's not an easy way to get out of them, unfortunately. Absolutely. So it's, it's the unfortunate and I always like to remind people as well, typically it just becomes a filing burden as opposed to necessarily costing you a lot of money in actual tax scenario. Yeah. Uh, usually it's just a pain to have to deal with and it just increases. So if you're used to, you know, going to your local ac accountant or CPA to file your taxes, it might cost you a couple hundred bucks. Well, you might want to add a zero and then that's what your new filing costs might be. But, you know, realistically it's, it's a increased level of complication because there's more forms now required to file what would normally be a fairly simple tax return. So the general thumb is that it's not that you can't own a Canadian mutual fund and that actually extends to exchange traded funds in Canada too. They're still considered PFIX for all intents and purposes. So it's not that you can't, it's just the filing burden that goes along with it is the juice is typically not worth the squeeze. Yeah, exactly. And the, the problem, I guess, or the, the challenge, I guess, that, that U.S. citizens usually face especially with respect to PFIX, although it extends to a bunch of other things, is that number one, it's very unlikely that they know anything about PFIX because they would have no reason to know what this is. Number two, it's also quite unlikely that their U.S. advisors know anything about PFIX unless the U.S. advisors are doing foreign income tax returns frequently. And then number three, if they get advisors in Canada, it's also unlikely that the Canadian advisors know anything about PFIX unless they're very keyed into these issues and dealing with these issues on a frequent basis. So there's sort of a trifecta of challenges and hurdles that make it quite easy 
for U.S. citizens to trip up on these rules. Absolutely. And I think a lot of them, they're unintentional, right? So I don't think yeah. anybody is doing it maliciously in any way, shape or form. It's just, if you don't do it a lot, then why would you know about it, right? Unless, I mean, the tax code in the U.S. is very complicated. So unless you're going to really go digging, are you really going to go there for, for just casual reading material? Probably not. So most and, and average people in the U.S. just wouldn't be familiar with anything to do if you don't live here. So all the rules are designed around, you know, sort of a nationalistic view where you're going to be staying here, consuming here and living here. But the moment you go abroad, that's when you take a lot of the conventional rules and sort of throw them out the window, but they still apply. So just, I would like to lovingly refer to a lot of these people as accidental Americans, where you're an American, but you didn't know it, right? You're still required to do certain things, but you had no idea. And a lot of them comes from people who are born here, but have lived abroad their entire lives. So it's not that these are all fixable scenarios. You just need to be with professionals that have experience in dealing with it. And it is absolutely a specialized skill set because like you mentioned, typical American professionals wouldn't be necessarily familiar with it unless they deal with a lot of foreigners. Same thing with Canadians. They wouldn't necessarily deal with it unless they deal with a lot of Americans. So it's only those people who have that specialized skill set or, and, and that, that kind of goes with any sort of higher functioning sort of scenario when it comes to dealing with professionals, whether it be with the medical professional, you wouldn't necessarily expect sort of somebody who's more of a general practitioner to know something really specific, right? So that's when you would normally be referred out to somebody who's effectively a specialist. Yep, absolutely. Uh, well, let me ask you one question then, and then we'll flip, uh, we'll reverse orders here sure. and talk about uh, Canadians coming to the U.S. Because I think this is a, this particular issue is one that goes both ways. And that, it, and I'm curious to hear how you try to handle this for your clients. And that is currency exchange problems. Uh, because from, as far as I understand from a Canadian per perspective, and certainly from a U.S. perspective, you're now dealing in currency in two different jurisdictions. And once you're dealing with currency in two different jurisdictions, the exchange rate on the currency, number one, can be problematic for you because the strength or weakness of the currency exchange can affect how your investments are doing. And then number two, changing currencies from one currency to, to the next can also be viewed as a sale transaction for tax purposes. Absolutely. So this is where things become complicated and it depends on what jurisdiction we're talking about here. So uh, the reality is Canada is a little bit lighter on a lot of these things than the United States is, to be perfectly frank, but this one specifically, so we'll tackle this in a couple different ways. So number one, I'm not a specialized foreign exchange trader. So I'll preface everything by saying that we do it in our practice, but it's more of a value add that we do for clients as opposed to necessarily a profit center for our firm. So, you know, we're able to do it at fairly good rates, but you're right that the reality is that our currencies are different and they're, you know, U.S. dollar is still the world's reserve currency. So our Canadian dollar is still pegged to the U.S. dollar. But right now I think it's like 30 cents on the dollar, right? So, you know, 1.7 or 1.3 is our exchange rate. And that's not great, but that's not that far off our historical norm. It's sort of like 80 cents on the dollar historically. So, you know, we're, we're a little bit weaker than when we have been. And there's been periods of time where we've been actually above where the Canadian dollar was stronger, but those days, you know, are few and far between. So it's happened a few times over my lifetime. So that's one side is the actual just currency itself, that there is an exchange rate differential. And that's just something you have to be mindful of. Right now, it works in favor for any American moving to Canada. You get effectively a 30% return just for doing nothing. Institutions typically charge a small spread for doing the exchange of the actual currency. So you want to just be mindful with whatever firm you're working with, what their spread will be. Uh, and the spread is simply between the, the difference between the, the, the bid price and the ask price on the actual security, or in this case, the currency. So that's one. And then obviously there's some nuances with regards to the taxation side of things. And that's where you're I think, getting at. And uh, I'm going to be 
mindful of the fact that, again, I'm not a CPA, so I don't want to go in and go above my depth and being able to answer this question. But in general, some people can deem that to be a disposition of actually changing a, a, a quote unquote a security. So uh, I will defer that back to you to give a little bit more guidance on it. But in general, some people view it as a, as a potential disposition and others, it, it really depends on what professional you're talking to. I'll leave that to you to answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's anytime you're exchanging one thing for another thing of different value and it has changed value over time. So let's say you uh, exchange US, US currency for Canadian currency in an account, the Canadian currency then vis-a-vis -vis the US dollar changes value and then you exchange back into US dollars. Doing that exchange can be viewed for US purposes as if you sold something, you know, not like, not like just cash, a cash exchange, but it, it, as if you sold an actual commodity and so it can trigger taxes in the U.S. So to the extent that you're really smart and you can time those things, I guess it's an advantage to the extent that you're just a regular schmuck like me and you would never be able to time it. Uh, then you you have to be somewhat strategic if you're gonna if you're gonna hold say significant amounts of money in Canadian dollars because you're living in Canada and so you need cash in Canada that you can access. You have to understand that if you're then traveling back and forth to the US and you're trying to exchange that money all the time, going back and forth to the US, you could be triggering taxable events by doing all these, these frequent exchanges of currency. Absolutely. So that's so what, we, what we try to do on our side is typically try to encourage clients that if you know that you're in one of the, you know, the individuals that will frequently do that, then it may be worth doing sort of a one-time conversion of, a, of an amount of money and doing that on a periodic basis as opposed to constantly converting back and forth. And I think that's where things can get a little bit dangerous for most people is when you're doing it frequently. If you're doing it once, it's not really the end of the world, but if you're doing it all the time, so usually take sort of depending on how much planning you do. And I think that's what a lot of this comes down to is preventative maintenance could go a really long way. You know, if, if people are, have at least some foresight to be able to decide, is this something that I think I might do? So if we have like snowbirds, for example, from Canada, we do this frequently for them is you know, we'll just hold a reasonable amount of both currencies, right? That way you have them, they're accessible. There's really nothing wrong. Long-term holding US dollars has always been favorable for most Canadians. So it's usually not a bad thing. So overall, it, it works out fairly well if you keep at least a little bit of a balance in both. Nice. And that's, that's essentially what I would expect too, that you would want to have reserves essentially uh, in both currencies. So you do not have to play the exchange games on a constant basis. All right. So let's, so then let's reverse the order here. What are some surprises that you see for Canadians who are moving to the U S or spending significant amounts of time in the U S? So fortunately Canada and namely our, I guess, governing body for taxation, the Canadian revenue agency, CRA, they're a little bit easier to work with frankly, compared to the IRS. So uh, we don't tax on citizenship in Canada. We tax on residency. So if somebody adequately severs their ties to Canada. And again, that's something that you really want to get qualified help from a CPA or a tax specialist to help make sure that you did adequately sever your ties. So it could be something as simple as our universal health care that we have in Canada. So in Ontario, where I live, you have an OHIP card, which is like your actual, I guess, health insurance card that health insurance card by having it for some people that may be considered to be a, a tie to Canada by even maintaining that. So that even in some cases could be enough to say, you know what, you are still a resident for tax purposes. So you want to really make sure that you adequately sever your ties to Canada. There is a basic test that's usually done. Uh, any qualified tax professional, cross-border professional, namely the immigration as well, can help uh, any individual who's going through that. 
make sure that you're sort of have your ducks in a row. But that being said, uh, Canada in general is a little bit easier to deal with um, than, than the United States when it comes to being abroad. So there aren't, if you adequately sever your ties, you don't typically owe any reporting requirement to Canada when you're not here. Um, however, I will say that if you have legacy assets that are left in Canada, what can come as a surprise is that there are 13 states in the United States that don't follow the federal tax treaty. So we have a tax treaty with the United States, but California, amongst others, for example, don't follow the federal treaty. So on a state level, even though something may be considered to be a retirement or pensionable asset, uh, it may be considered to be a non-retirement asset in that specific state. And that can come as a shock. So that's probably the number one that we see for people when they move to any one of those 13 states. And I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. Oh, we can definitely get you a list of them. But they're the ones that I think that are the sort of cause the biggest amount of headaches. And then also, you know, just long-term realizing what am I going to do with these assets? So I'm leaving them here. They're still considered a tax-deferred vehicle. Should I keep them? Should I not? It's just basic planning questions that we sent, we, we find happen more frequently. Yeah. So the, and this, this is definitely a, a California issue. So if you're not in California or the 12 other states that don't follow the treaty or the IRS guidance, then, you know, for a, a Canadian who moves to the U.S. and they have, the Canadian has in Canada, certain types of Canadian retirement accounts that are quite similar to uh, IRAs in the U.S., RRSP or RRIF account in Canada. Those accounts get, for the most part, uh, with a big asterisk that this is, this is a very nuanced area, but for the most part, they get the same treatment in the U.S. as they would have for if they were IRAs in the U.S., okay, so you don't you don't have uh, taxation on the account. The the IRS will agree that that account is is a tax deferred vehicle. You don't get taxed on it until money starts coming out. Other than those two, there's no guidance between the two countries on retirement accounts. So if you have a Canadian who has a retirement account that doesn't fit into one of those categories, then they become resident in the U.S. What I see is sometimes they're very surprised to learn that. The retirement account, first of all, in the U.S. is not viewed as a tax-deferred account at all, and it's subject to very complicated uh, rules. In fact, rules that are not perfectly fleshed out even in, in the U.S. under U.S. tax laws because it's like a square peg in a round hole. We, our tax laws don't really contemplate how are we going to view a very specific type of foreign retirement account. And so you're trying to overlay the existence and the characteristics of that foreign retirement account over these U.S. tax rules that were never written specifically for that account to begin with. And so you get into a scenario where you have a, a Canadian who becomes resident in the U.S. Now they're subject to these U.S. rules potentially, and they're very difficult to report and they're very difficult to manage from an income tax perspective. That can be from from what I see, that could be a big shock. So if you didn't know that this issue was coming at you and then you discover it after the fact, it could be quite surprising. Absolutely. And so I, I lovingly refer to a lot of that as sticker shock, right? So you're just not yeah. used to <laughs> seeing, oh, like, oh, really? Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. And, you know, most people in Canada, I mean, our, our limits for being able to contribute into an RRSP or retirement savings plan uh, is actually higher than the 401k limit that you guys have in the U.S. So you know, you'd be surprised over a period of time, you can amount a pretty sizable amount of money in there. And if you've been good at investing and things have worked up positively for you, you can have a pretty significant amount of money in there. And to realize that all of a sudden that's now taxable can be a cause for concern for people. So 
at least the income, not necessarily the principal, but at least the income generated off of that. So if you have seven figures in your retirement plan, you know, that's a pretty significant amount of money you may be subject to paying taxes on. So there's ways in which you can do it to minimize that. I mean, is it possible to get it down to zero? It's, it's hard, it's possible, but you know, in general, you just want to be mindful and try to be investing in a way that what we call at least is tax smart. The plus side is that at least a lot of the Canadian retirement vehicles when you're abroad are typically not subject to a lot of the American PFIC rules. So at least that's one positive that you can still own your ETS and mutual funds typically inside of a Canadian retirement vehicle, at least it's, if it's inside of that account structure. If it's outside of that, it typically would be considered PFIC. The other one that people aren't aware of that, that ends up happening is, as in a Canadian when you move abroad is, again, your non-retirement assets are considered to be um, they're, they're, they're governed under residential jurisdiction. So you need to be where you are. So if you have um, a non-retirement account in Canada that you've been using for a long time, when you move, that has to go with you. And you'll have to find another institution to house that. And even if that relationship was really strong, you really like that person, that doesn't matter. It's actually just a securities law requirement that it has to be where you are. So that can sometimes be a kind of a tougher pill for people to swallow. And that leads to other potential tax issues. And again, I won't speak too much on that, but the step up typically does happen as you cross over the border from a revaluation on your cost basis. So those are something that you definitely want to at least be mindful and seek uh, qualified cross-border tax counsel. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. There are, there are treaty benefits that you can take advantage of as you're changing residency from one side of the border to the other. And you really do have to consult with someone who's familiar with those treaty benefits before you do it. Uh, because A, there could be some planning opportunities before you actually cross the border. And B, if you're not aware of the benefits, then you could end up in a scenario where in future years, you're actually not reporting things the way that you could have been reporting them. And you might not be able to go back and fix it after the fact. So let me give you just sort of one little tidbit on that, which is the IRS takes the position that if you want to claim the benefits of the tax treaty, you have to file a very specific form at the exact right time and tell the IRS that that's what you're doing. And if you didn't file that ex specific form at the right time, the IRS, at least administratively, takes the position that you cannot claim the benefits under that treaty at all. I think that's a weak argument from the IRS's perspective, but that's kind of the position that they take. So in a best case scenario, you would be filing that form, that specific form at the exact right time always when you're taking these treaty-based positions and never missing the filing requirement. If you don't know the filing requirement exists at all, you would never file the form. And it prob probably doesn't get picked up if you go to H&R Block where you uh, are doing TurboTax or you know some other self-preparation program. It's just not going to get picked up. Right. They're not going to prompt you for something that they're not, it's obscure and that they're not used to. Yeah. So a Canadian acquiring assets in the U.S., not necessarily moving to the U.S. and becoming a resident here, but what about estate tax concerns for them in, in the U.S.? Because before they own something here, estate tax doesn't apply to them. But then once they start acquiring assets in the U.S., then potentially they have an estate tax exposure. Rachel? Yep, exactly. So they are uh, they potentially do have an estate tax exposure. And unfortunately, um, the U.S. doesn't provide um, as favorable estate tax exemption amounts um, as it does to U.S. citizens. So, in, you know, as a U.S. citizen, there's over $11 million estate tax exemption right now. So you can acquire quite a bit of assets before you potentially have a liability. 
However, uh, for non-citizens, um, that amount is only $60,000. So it is considerably less. Um, so when you think of just owning a summer home, like here in Arizona, if you wanted to get away and not have the harsh winters in Canada, then you know if that home is going to be worth over $60,000, and they could potentially have an estate tax liability that they might not be aware of. And the treaty does address the estate tax, so there is a way under the treaty that a Canadian resident can get sort of a proportionate share of that 11 plus million dollar exemption amount. And depending on what the worldwide estate value is for that Canadian resident, they could get 100% coverage from estate tax under the treaty. But the way that the, the rules work is that if you don't file an estate tax return, when say that Canadian resident dies, their estate doesn't file a US estate tax return timely and file this very special form that I was talking about uh, at the exact right moment, then the US perspective is you don't, get a, you don't get the benefit of the treaty and because you were required to file the form but you did not, even though you would not have had to have paid the tax, but you're required to file the form and you did not, the tax basis or the tax base for the US asset is zero in the hands of your heirs and beneficiaries, that can come as quite a shock. And so it's important for Canadians acquiring assets in the U.S., even if they're not going to become resident in the U.S., to be aware that when they die, someone is going to need to file that estate tax re report. They're going to have to tell the IRS the value of their worldwide assets, and they're just going to have to bite the bullet and do it, because failure to do so when you have to file that form and have to, meaning you have more than $60,000 worth of U.S.-based assets. Failure to file a form means your tax base in the U.S. in the hands of, say, your spouse or kids is $0. And you're going to pay maximum, if you sell that asset, then you're going to pay capital gains in the States on 100% of the gain, even though in Canada, it's only going to be taxed on a portion of the gain. You're going to have a mismatch and you're going to end up paying more tax than you otherwise would have to. So that's just one thing that is a little bit of a tricky little tax tidbit that gets missed from time to time. And, and it's important for Canadians who are coming down here to be properly advised to understand that that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our tax codes are, 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 are still fairly different, right? So there's a lot of similarities, but they are different. And I think it's great to be able to give, uh, you know, professionals like yourselves to be able to help Canadians who literally know very little about the United States as well, at least from a tax standpoint. So it's great advice. So let's talk then about like what, what are the best ways or what are uh, good ways that, from your perspective of kind of knitting things together for somebody who is on both sides of the border and they've got investments on both sides of the border, which of course there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but what is the best way to, to structure the, that investment makeup on a kind of aggregate basis? So it's a loaded question. I think it really <laughs> ended up depending on the complexity of the individual and how much they have and which one, right? So uh, again, going back to my example, the cement poles, right? So the retirement accounts in each country, those are fairly straightforward. So you're entitled to keep them where they are. They're still considered tax deferred. So that's a good idea to maintain it. Now, depending on where you are a resident of and what your citizenship, what color your, actually the colors of the passport are the same, but let's just say whether you're American or Canadian, but uh, depending on the circumstance, will kind of dictate a little bit on what you can and can't do. But for a really sort of 500 foot level, you know, you want to maintain your retirement vehicles. Anytime you can defer, tax in either country is usually a good idea. So we encourage that. So if you can continue doing that, then there's things like education savings plans where, you know, 
529s in the US, RESPs in Canada, those are usually a good idea, but there's always stars beside those and they're all dependent on what's your citizenship, right? So those are things you wanna be mindful of. And then there's what I call the spillover accounts, which would be like a Roth in the US or a TFSA in Canada, which are both good ideas again, but have that star beside it depending on your citizenship. It will dictate whether or not it's a good idea for you to use. So you wanna maximize wherever you can defer, defer. Then you have the taxable accounts. And then at least in the United States, people use trust quite frequently for tax purposes. Uh, in Canada, we use trust a little bit differently. So it's not that they're not a viable vehicle here. They're just not necessarily a tax minimization tool because typically the tax are the highest marginal tax bracket. So for the most part, you do it for control reasons, not so much for anything else, right? So you want to control stuff from the grave? Well, that's a good way to do it. Uh, I can actually put a lot of good handcuffs on stuff if that's what you feel is necessary for your family situation. So um, those are kind of the things that we typically advise people to at least have a, just kind of look at what your plan is. And ultimately it's also about where do you think you're going to end up? So you may have assets on both sides of the border, but do you think you're going to end up in Canada or do you think you're going to end up in the United States and sort of your twilight years? And that will actually help a little bit from a planning standpoint as well. And are you going to be subject to social security in the U S and Medicaid, Medicare, and all that kind of good stuff? Or are you going to be collecting, you know, Canadian um, equivalents instead. So you want to be mindful of, of some of these ideas and what is your long-term game plan? And I think the reality is at least there's a stat in Canada, 69% of Canadians don't have a formally written financial plan. And I would have ventured to guess that it's pretty similar for Americans. I think it's around 50% if I'm not mistaken. So having at least a, a, as much thought as possible behind what do you want to do? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it. It's just more, what is it that you want to do? Like people like myself, I like to joke lovingly that I'm a professional enabler. My job is to make whatever it is that you want happen, happen within reason, of course. So if you can't think it, then how do we know when we're there? So that's part of it is I use the analogy of trying to drive somewhere. These days, all of us use GPS, right? All of us use a map of some sort. So the analogy of not having a formally written financial plan, it's like trying to drive somewhere without a map. How do you know when you're there, when you've reached your destination? And most people, and then if you add on top of that, the layers of complexity with cross-border, that just makes it even more complicated. And a big one that people miss is you've now, let's say, figured out yourself. What about your beneficiaries? And how rarely do people even think about the next gen or your next of kin? And I can't tell you the number of times where we've encountered a scenario where a person was a U.S. resident named Canadian beneficiaries, and all their planning was done as for an American resident and took no thought, rhyme or reason, on anything to do with anything outside the U, uh, of the U.S. And all of a sudden, you ran into a certain scenario where to actually minimate probate, you opened up income tax, right? And so stuff like that, where you're kind of one hand is not talking to the other. So this is why wherever possible, we highly, highly encourage, speak with qualified professionals and get a plan in place. Because if you can think it, then at least you can try to minimize it. But if you don't know, then you're going to run headfirst in whatever happens. That's kind yeah. of my two cents, at least from a 500 foot level. I could go on a rant for a while. I try to keep that to the minimum. I, I think that's, uh, those are really good thoughts and really wise counsel that having a, having a lifestyle or having a family footprint that is international and in both the U.S. and Canada is spectacular. And there can be incredible personal benefits to doing that. You know, both countries are stable countries and they're they're clean and they're safe and they have amazing places to go to see and great people and great food and you know both both countries are wonderful places to spend time so all, on a very personal like individual and like family level it's a fantastic thing to have this sort of cross-border footprint it's just that once you have it you have to recognize 
that there are better ways to manage that structure and worse ways to manage that structure. And if you don't know about the better ways, you would never define them on your own. It's not intuitive. It's not like you can just back up the reasoning into exactly what it is you're supposed to do because the rules are, are very unique and you just wouldn't know what they are unless you knew them. And so getting good advice and talking with people who are very familiar with those issues becomes really critical. And even talking to somebody who's only keyed into the issues in one jurisdiction and not the other is oftentimes detrimental to your point of, you know, if you haven't thought about, say, the beneficiaries and how like a U.S. structure could affect a Canadian beneficiary, you may have done great planning in the U.S., but it actually was poor planning once you're gone and now your kid's are thrown into that structure because nobody knew to ask the question of, well, what would, what would happen in Canada if we take this structure and flip it uh, across the border? So those sorts of questions, even very good domestic Canadian or domestic U S advisors, unless they do cross border work, they, they're not keyed into that issue. So uh, I'm sure. And it sounds like it from this conversation, Shiraz, that you uh, do a lot of good counseling with your clients and you kind of help them negotiate a lot of these landmines. And once they negotiate the landmines, they can have very good, efficient structures. Absolutely. No, and we appreciate the thought. So it's, it is difficult. It can feel like a daunting task at times when you're trying to navigate the two different uh, scenarios, but once you get through it, then you can then focus on frankly, what is the most important to you, right? Is living the life that you really want. So we always, that's why I refer to it as the enabling part is if you can get through some of sort of the hurdles that are there and, Yes, they are there, but they're all fixable for the most part, right? On very, very few scenarios that are completely unfixable, and, and it does happen. But most things with a degree of planning and a, and a degree of foresight and actually getting in the appropriate counsel in advance of doing things can go a really long way in making your life easier. And making sure that, you know, when people are out of their depth, what, just hap- what does happen, and, you know, there's certain circumstances, for example, I'm not a tax expert. I know a lot about it, but I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm not a CPA. So for that reason, I'm not going to give you guidance on tax counsel. I'm going to encourage somebody that, look, this is beyond my depth, right? Speak with a person who is qualified to be able to give you that guidance. I think it's also about the professionals of being able to admit where I'm out of my depth. And I think that's where things can go a little bit wrong is when people aren't willing to admit where, okay, this is my limitation. I don't want to go outside of that. And I'm not here to point the finger at anybody specifically. It happens to everybody, but at least that's something at least just be mindful of is that as, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Smith as investors and as just people out there that if you're getting into a scenario, make sure that you're getting appropriate counsel. And as awesome as Google is, it can actually hurt you a lot too. So, you know, we don't want to all be WebMDing everything that we get all the time. So similarly, you'll get a lot of conf- conflicting information out there. And uh, I can't tell you how often that we've had, you know, individuals have moved over the border that called into their U.S. retirement age or the, their institution that they were working with. And depending on who they get at that XYZ call center, they're going to get a different answer. And so there's so much misinformation that if they have that ticking clock in that scenario we talked about, you had 90 days to solve this problem. You just wasted 45 going in circles chasing your own tail because you got a lot of misinformation. So I think that's where things can become a real challenge for people is that especially when you have a ticking clock, then you want to make sure you're getting adequate counsel in advance of doing it. So seeking out professionals that know what they're doing in advance of that will go a really long way, just making your life easy because moving on a good day is challenging. If you add on top of all the other stuff that could come with it, that just makes it even more, more challenging. Yeah. And I, and I know from uh, prior conversations we've had that you and I kind of have a similar view of 
we're willing to be useful pieces of the puzzle. We don't have to be the full puzzle. So I know like if you had mentioned if, if a client has say US advisors, now they need the Canadian piece. You're happy to be the Canadian piece. You don't have to be both sides of it and vice versa, you know, because you guys are just wanting to be value adders to the circumstance. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that just comes as, as professionals. Some people want the whole pie, right? So from our side, it's if you focus on the outcome, and trying to affect a positive outcome for the client one way or another. When one person wins, everybody will end up winning, right? So really, if you put that sort of front and center as your highest priority, saying, look, how do we affect positive outcome for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right? And trying to get them through this scenario, then ultimately, you know, the cards will fall where the cards will fall, right? And whether the person chooses to consolidate something with you or not, that's up to them, right? But realistically, we play in the sandbox all the time. It's a big part of my practice because we work with so many professionals from literally every walk of life you can imagine. And, and that's part of it is ultimately, if you have a, a team built around you as, as uh, professionals that can help you get from where you need to be, from where you are to where you need to be, that's what you want. And so if they're not openly communicating, at least where they're legally allowed to, that's what you want to have ultimately to get the best outcome for the client. Because when you have people who are professionals that are working together for your benefit. Yeah, I love it. Shiraz, this has been fun. Where can uh, where can folks find you should they want to seek you out? That's a great question. So uh, from my side, you can reach my website, www.sartorialwealth.com. And in case anybody's wondering, that's Latin for tailor-made. So, I mean, we're in COVID time, so I'm actually, I put on a dress shirt for you guys, but normally it's bespoke. That's the whole point behind it. It's kind of a unifying theme of my practice. In addition to that, you can always reach me. It's shiraz.ahmed at raymondjames.ca via email. You can always call my office as well at 416-777-7026. Excellent. Well, hopefully uh, anybody listening who has need for the obvious uh, expertise that you bring to the table, they will reach out to you and find you just fine. Thanks again, Shiraz. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brent, Rachel. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.